Eric, as always, and Sonia. Sweet thing to have you guys lead us together. Well, this morning, we were supposed to have the privilege and joy of having our good friend, um, Stuart Scott, come and bring us the word of the Lord. And I was so excited, he emailed me the PowerPoint and the handout, and he was going to talk to us about unity in the essentials. And he had just a wonderful flowchart and teaching on what the essentials of the gospel, what unites us, secondary issues, preferences, and just really organizing it really well to give us insights over the things that really God calls us to be united on and the things in church life that we can have preferences and we can have freedoms in and very relevant to biblical counseling. I typically, when Stuart Scott comes and does the NCT conference, I kind of nab him and call him up and say, hey, you're there, can you come down and speak at our church? And that's one of the ways in which I'm able to get uh, Dr. Scott to come and and teach us and and minister to us. But in God's providence and God's design and God's goodness, uh, Dr. Scott tested positive for COVID just before the conference, as some of you heard. And so uh, let's really be in prayer for him and his family. That makes it a little complicated for him. He was trying to find a way back to Southern California since he's not allowed to fly for 14 days. And uh, we were texting back and forth. And I know many of you were praying for him. So please continue to pray for him, for his health and well-being. First and foremost, his walk with Christ. And uh, also... um, really all the other details which I'm sure affects his family and many others in his life. And uh, in this way, God's allowed me to be back in the pulpit, and that is always a joy and a privilege and an excitement, even on short notice. And this morning we come back to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a passage that we've gone through, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, uh, the birth of Jesus. It's a passage that we've Um, actually gone through a couple of times for Advent, but I was particularly excited in the study for this sermon and passage, was looking forward to bringing it to you next week, and we get to do it today. And uh, could I have my first slide, AV team? Thank you. One of the reasons um, this passage in particular at this time has such special relevance, I think, to our church and our family. It goes through many of the things that Eric led us in song and uh, Ted led us in prayer, but it very much addresses an issue that's very much a hot topic in America and in the church today, the issue of the family. One of the questions that presently divides America and divides the church is the question, what is a family? What is a family? From our schools, to our courts, to our churches, this is a question that divides. And it is argued and debated very much on terms and revolves around the issues of gender and the issue of freedom and the issue of our rights. Gender, freedom, and rights. That's very much how this question, what is a family, is framed. Not only in our schools and our courts, but quite frankly also in our churches. And for many American Christian people, this is really the battle of our time. So much time and energy and focus is devoted on a personal level, in our finances, in our politics, and in our church lives, it revolves around this idea that we, as Christians, need to reclaim the family in America. And we need to do so in education, we need to do it in politics, we need to do it in bathrooms and public spaces. As a whole, we need to fight this battle to reclaim the family. And as we fight this battle, brothers and sisters, I want to raise another question. In this battle, where does Jesus fit in? And when when it comes to fighting for our families, brothers and sisters, your family and mine, where does the gospel and where does God's word fit in? Well, this is a question that 
very much lies at the heart of the text we're going to listen to and consider this morning. Matthew 1, 18-25, where Matthew gives his divinely inspired account of the supernatural birth of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And this account of Jesus' arrival, His advent, His coming, this account of Jesus really very specifically and explicitly according to Matthew, His very unique and extraordinary birth, supernatural birth, is a foundation and is foundational to Matthew's testimony of who Jesus is. You cannot separate Jesus from the way in which He came into our world and the way in which He comes to each one of us in our lives and our families. And quite frankly, He comes in the same way. He always comes according to God's Word. He never comes separately. Despite all the attestations, despite all the testimonies, Jesus, whether it was 2,000 years ago in the womb of a virgin or whether it's in your heart or mine, whether it be in a college dorm room, or whether you're doing military service like Linda, no matter where or how we are, Jesus comes always to us in the same way. He always comes in fulfillment of God's Word, and always according to God's Word. It is never separate. And Matthew here shows that we cannot separate this virgin birth, this supernatural arrival of Jesus from who Jesus is. Because Matthew's burden, as we've talked about, is that we might know who Jesus is, not according to our expectations or our opinions, but according to the Word of God. According to the Word of God. That, at the end of the day, is what really matters. And according to Matthew's testimony, God is using this And this message and this life of Jesus and His arrival to remind us that God's remedy for the family, brothers and sisters, is not politics. It's not education. It's not legislation. It's not a decision whether we should homeschool our kids or send them to Christian education or send them into the public school system. Some of the things that we can sadly divide over or look down upon one another. The remedy, brothers and sisters, for our families. God's remedy for our families. Is nothing less than the gospel. The good news of God's eternal son. And this is because, according to God's word, the family begins and ends not with us. The family begins and ends with the God who created the family. The God of the Bible. And He alone is the one who can save the family. Whether it be a family in the United States of America or Colombia or Afghanistan. And this, brothers and sisters, I believe is the big truth of Matthew's account of the virgin birth in Matthew 1.18-25. through 25. Can I have my next slide please? Here's our our big truth for this passage for this morning. And it's that according to God's Word, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This is what Matthew's showing us in this passage, but it has a particular relevance to us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, according to all the prophecies of Scripture, according to all of God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament, Jesus is God's promised King and Savior who has come to us to be with us in an extraordinary way to do an extraordinary work that only God can do. And that is the work of saving sinners like us and making sinners like us part of His family. The family of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the church is part of. Or what it should be part of. Not a political organization. Not a homeschooling organization. Not a Christian school organization. Though those things are not bad. But what's, what's our identity? What sets us apart as the people of God? It's that we belong 
to him. That's what we sang about this morning. What's our only hope in life and death? That's taken from, I believe, the Heidelberg Confession. That in life or death, we belong not to ourselves or this fallen world. We belong to Jesus. Hopefully that's what we are teaching our children. Their only hope in life and death is not the big car, the big mansion, the big Ivy League career. Those are not bad in and of themselves, though I have none of those things. It's that we belong to who? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we forget that, don't we? I've been talking with brothers recently and a number with small children coming in. And the burdens and the stresses of making a family viable in Silicon Valley with Silicon Valley prices, right? And the truth is, is we could all probably sell all we have and go to Afghanistan and Haiti and live for the rest of our lives. And live well. Not an option, right? But it's a reminder, brothers and sisters, what is our real treasure? What is our only hope in life and death? It's that we belong to Jesus and he has made us part of his family. And that's the good news, brothers and sisters, especially if you come, out, come from a Torah family like we read about in the genealogy of Jesus. Many of those families, dysfunctional or the technical term Torah. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now I know this is against your desires, but I'm going to jump down to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling or not desiring to put her to shame... Resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Matthew 1 begins and ends by pointing us to who Jesus is according to God's word. And in between, the beginning and the end is a list of families. Families play an important role in God's plan of salvation and in the gospel. And it begins with the family of Abraham and it comes to a halt at least in the end of chapter 1 with the family of Joseph. And these are the families through whom God's word works. God's word working through these families, some of them knowingly, some of them they didn't know. Or didn't want to know. But nonetheless God's word. Working through these families. Through the line of Abraham. And the line of David. 
in order to bring you and I the good news of Jesus Christ. Doing so, as we've said before, one life, one family, one generation at a time. Bringing us to the gospel, the testimony of God's good news of how He sent His Son into our world and into our lives to save sinners like us. And when you look at that list of families, you see the DNA of God's good news. God's good news is not for perfect, spiffed up people who have it all together and are doing everything perfectly and their kids go to the best schools and they go to the best churches and they're part of the best vacation Bible school. When you look at that list, as we said before, and you cross-reference and you read the stories, <sighs> tough stuff, okay? PG-21, okay? You can explain to your children at a later date. There are things there of people doing terrible, terrible, terrible things. And yet it's a testimony that God's Word and His grace and His love for His children is so much greater than our sin. And it's also so much greater than our best days at our peak moments when we feel we've got it all together and we're doing well. Because before the Lord, our righteousness, brothers and sisters, is as filthy rags before the holiness of God. And we desperately, desperately need a Savior. And we need the gospel, not only on our worst days, but on our best days too. And that brings us to our first point. Could I have my next slide, please? Thank you. The gospel is the good news of God's Word at work. In sinners like us. The gospel is the good news of God's word at work in sinners like us. And beginning in verse 18, Matthew shows us this. And he shows us that by God's design and according to God's word, God's son enters into our world through a family and through circumstances that from a human point of view... They are hardly desirable. They're not the circumstances and they're not the family that you and I would pick and choose, I don't think. And yet Matthew begins his account here of the birth of Jesus in verse 18. With the same word he begins his gospel with in verse 1. He begins with the Koine Greek word Genesis. In verse 18, he writes, Now, the Genesis, what's translated birth, okay, but could also be translated origin or beginning. Now, the Genesis of Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah took place this way. And what Matthew is doing here is he is once again, second time around, connecting Jesus' birth and his entrance into this world with the book of Genesis. And it's through these God-breathed words, he shows us that Jesus' birth is no ordinary birth. Like Genesis, when God created the world in six literal days, through the power of His Word, Jesus' birth is a new beginning for the people of God. Jesus' birth is an extraordinary work of God's Word. Jesus' birth... is what we, brothers and sisters, so, so, so desperately need. We tend to think about the gospel in the same way we tend to think about our families many times. So often we tend to think about those things in terms of the choices we make. And of course, there's that famous statement that you choose your friends, but your families you can't choose. But in America, you can make your own families any way you want. And we tend to think about the gospel many times the same way we think about our families. It's a lifestyle choice. Choose to be a Christian. Choose to come to church. Choose to get married, choose to have children, choose to send our kids to school A, B, C, D, or E. Choose to take vacations with their families. All of those things. Our propensity, brothers and sisters, is to think of our Christian life, our families, our worship, primarily as a lifestyle choice. 
But in both the genealogy of Jesus and in the birth of Jesus, Matthew is showing us, especially as he takes us back to that word Genesis, he's showing us that the gospel and gospel families don't begin with our choices. We participate, it's true. We are able to make choices, it's true. Our choices have consequences, no doubt about that. But let's not allow our choices to diminish who God is according to His Word and where our families start. Families begin with God. And very specifically, the gospel and gospel families, which is, I hope, what we all aspire to, begin with God's work in our lives. It begins with the work of His Word in our lives. And that's a humbling thought, isn't it? At the end of the day, we can't achieve or fulfill all the goodness God has and desires for us. We need His Word working in our lives in order for those things to happen. And in verse 18, Matthew highlights for us, this work of God's Word here begins In the womb of a virgin named Mary. He says, now the birth of the genesis of Jesus Christ, verse 18, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now men, do you remember our exegesis 101 lesson last week? When the ladies appear, what? Let me hear you say it. Let me hear you say it. Good job. You're men. You can say it. When the ladies appear, pay attention. So just like in the genealogy we went through last week, and just like throughout the Old Testament, when there is a break in a typical pattern, and the typical pattern in genealogies and family stories is it's all about the men. Abraham fathered Isaac. Right? The men, legal representatives and heads, genealogies, who represents? The stories, who represents? And so throughout Scripture, when ladies are mentioned, it's not uncommon that the pattern is being broken. And it's being broken for an important reason. God is stepping in to do something extraordinary to fulfill His Word. Think about the resurrection of Jesus. Extraordinary work of God's Word. Who is it who Jesus appears to first? He appears to the ladies first. And the male disciples don't believe what they have to say. It doesn't say as a result that because of that we have women pastors. It doesn't say as a result of that that women are supposed to lead the home. Okay, It does tell us that God has an extraordinary plan for ladies in the church, but it is in God's way according to His Word. And so similarly, as we come through and we're following Matthew, who is very much writing within the context of the Old Testament Scriptures, and he comes and he's writing about this family, of how it came about, and the place he starts first is with Mary. He's breaking the pattern, and he's preparing us, and he's showing us God is about to step in here and do something unusual, extraordinary, supernatural, but he's doing it to fulfill his word. He's doing it in a way... In which he's showing us, I'm moving my plan forward. I'm doing what no man can do. And here the impossible is the presence of a new life and a new child in the womb of a virgin named Mary. Prior to her coming together with a man. Prior to her coming together with her betrothed, Joseph. And in case we didn't get the point, Matthew explicitly points this to us. He shows us explicitly this life, this child, this new family is not the work of man. Just like Genesis 1-2, which says the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Pointing to that as being the initial way in which God brings His Spirit to give life. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is the Spirit that gives life. 
Matthew shows us this pregnancy, this child is no work of man. This new life, this beginning in Mary's womb is literally, he says, from the Holy Spirit. Now you can deny the virgin birth all you want. Many Christian scholars have done that over the last 200 years. When you do so, you do so contrary to Matthew's explicit testimony. This is from the Lord. And yet as we come to verse 19, Matthew shows us how this work of God's Word in Mary's womb and in Joseph's life and his marriage and his family hardly seems like good news. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Navy team, if you could help me with that, thanks. God's gospel work in us defies our best understanding and our best expectation. God's gospel work in us defies our best understanding and expectation. Brothers and sisters, it's not uncommon when God's word comes in to do an extraordinary work in our lives. We don't quite understand what's going on. And in fact, many times when he begins that work, sometimes it's not welcome or desired. And in fact, that happens more often than we care to admit. And such is certainly the case for Joseph, who Matthew describes as being a just and righteous man. A just and righteous man. And that term, taken within the context of the Old Covenant, meant someone who loved the Lord. Someone who observed the law of Moses. Someone who was right with God, and according to the temple and the synagogue, was a member of the people of God, and had fulfilled all the requirements that God had asked. Really, according to Jewish standards, this is the best kind of man. He's not a tax collector. He's not like all those horrible sinners. He's not a centurion or a military man. He is a righteous man. This is the highest compliment you could give a man within the old covenant. And yet it is because Joseph is a just or righteous man who knows and keeps God's law that this pregnancy is not received initially as good news. This pregnancy for Joseph, as you see the implications of what Matthew writes, is actually a very, very big problem. Why? Very simply because this pregnancy defies Joseph's best understanding, his best expectations, his best reasoning. By all human accounts, a woman needs a man to get pregnant and have a baby. That's the way it's been since the beginning of time. Even if you want to create a new family, you somehow have to find... The seed and the egg to make that happen. And if the man is not a woman's husband, according to the law of Moses, if there are relations outside of marriage, if there is a relationship that results in a pregnancy outside of the covenant of marriage, that is a big problem, especially if you are a righteous and just man. In the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 22, it makes for some interesting reading. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. What the Lord shows His people in the law is that marriage and family belongs to Him. Our relationships, brothers and sisters, our friendships, if you are part of the household of God, if you're the people of God, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs first and foremost to God. It's not a private matter. What you do and what no one sees, God still sees and it belongs to Him. And God is holy and He has set apart all of life to be holy as He is holy. And He set apart marriage and family to be set apart for the love of God. To be holy and unstained with sin. A self-giving, self-sacrificing, faithful love. 
And so what he shows in Deuteronomy 22 is when that covenant of marriage is broken or destroyed. Something needs to be done. In the context in Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27, Moses through the law outlines that if a man has a relationship with a woman and she's betrothed to another man, and this is very interesting, the idea of betrothed is you're not even married, you're promised. It's the idea that your words are binding men. You need to think about what you say and how you say it to women. We cannot be casual or handle these words lightly. We are in a world where we say as long as it doesn't hurt someone, it doesn't matter. When I did a medical elective in Nazareth, the head physician took me aside when I first arrived and said, don't ever be caught in a room alone with some of these Arabic nurses. Never my intention. But she said, never do that. Why? Because their families take this very seriously. And when you spend time alone with one of the ladies, the assumption is you have intents to marry that person. And if you don't, you don't make good on that. You have tarnished their reputation. And we had a medical student who came in and did that. And the young lady's brothers waited for that man in the sook in the marketplace and they took him and they threw him off the side of the cliff and he had a broken hip and we had to get him out of here. That's 2,000 years after the fact. But God's framework here, brothers and sisters, is we're bound by our words. Our words matter. Our words belong to the Lord and so do our relationships. And our relationships belong to the Lord. You can't play fast and loose with that. And in Deuteronomy 22, he shows that these relationships between a man and a woman are holy. They're set apart for the Lord. And there's consequences when we don't treat them as holy. And if, even if we, we, our friends don't see, the Lord sees. And in Deuteronomy 22, Moses points out that if there are these relationships that happen with a woman who's betrothed to another man, if it's consensual and both the man and woman have agreed to this, you are to take that man and woman and you are to stone them. And you are to rid the household of God or the community of God from this evil. Both of them. No joke. And part of that is the expression that life has been killed. They have taken a life that does not belong to them. A life and a relationship that belongs to God. And that the marriage has been destroyed. The covenant has been broken. That life is dead. But then what's interesting is Moses goes on to explain if the woman was not in agreement with this, if she was taken advantage of, if she cried out in the field and no one was there to hear, i.e. this is a rape, then you kill only the man. But still, The holiness of that union between that woman and whom she was betrothed to is broken and it's dead. And so in the Old Testament, divorce is simply a public affirmation of what has happened already spiritually. And it's communicating to the community or the people of God, right? This is what sin does. Brothers and sisters, the enemy of marriage and our relationships and family from the very beginning is sin. And if we're going to reclaim the family, and if there's any hope for the family, somehow our sin needs to be dealt with. Well, as we come back to Joseph, Joseph, a man of the law right before the Lord, knowing the text like Deuteronomy, comes in and he's got this conundrum. I've discovered that my betrothed, my fiance, the one who is promised to me, the one to whom I belong. Joseph is referred to, Matthew refers to Matthew, or excuse me, Matthew refers to Joseph at this point as Mary's husband, even though they haven't come together. And that was typical of the tradition. The tradition at that time, women would be promised at the age of 12 or 13 
They would live in their parents' household a year before the formal official marriage when they would come into their husband's home. A contract typically would be signed, but they would spend that last year in their family's home preparing for the wedding. But during that time, legally, they were bound by covenant that they belonged to this man. Okay? And Joseph, as he comes into this situation and he he sees this situation and he's confronted with this, that they are engaged, that the covenant somehow in his eyes seems to have been broken. She is there with the child and it's not from him. Matthew says, being a just man and unwilling or not desiring to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is trying to find the best way through to this problem. And it's interesting to see the subtleties that Matthew brings out when he says he was unwilling or had no desire to put her to shame. And we see here, I believe, that Joseph is embracing the love that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. And so we see here that Joseph, the implication here is, he's going to give Mary the benefit of the doubt. He's not going to come in and assume that she has committed adultery. He's going to assume at best, to the best of his understanding, that this has happened against her will. This is not her design. This is not her work. And so he's going to obey the law, but he's going to do so with the provisions of the law, that a divorce will happen rather than a public disgrace or condemnation in the community. And it will happen discreetly because it is not his desire to shame or disgrace her. Brothers and sisters, I want to highlight this point and we see the kindness of Joseph's heart. When something happens in our families, our workplace, or our lives that inconvenience us, are we quick to judge? Do we give the benefit of the doubt? Do we hope all things? Do we wait for an explanation? Or do we jump to conclusions? And are we eager to find a way to reconcile and show grace rather than publicly shame or blame? Well, here Joseph, according to the law, believes he's obligated to to divorce Mary. He doesn't assume the worst. And yet his solution at the end is to divorce Mary quietly. And we see that with his best understanding, his best expectations, his best reasoning, he ends up doing the worst possible thing he could do. And this is Matthew, a just and gracious man's best remedy for this unexpected and unwanted problem, a quiet divorce. Matthew couldn't be more wrong. Why? Because the work of God's Word in our lives, brothers and sisters, is far greater than our understanding, our expectations, and our experiences. It's way above our pay grade. That's what makes the gospel good news. What makes the gospel good news is that Jesus is far beyond anything we could hope or imagine. And He's able to do in our lives far beyond anything we could hope or imagine. And He's able to do in our families far above anything we could hope or imagine. Beyond our expectation and our understanding. And that's why in Proverbs 3 and 5 and 6, we're told... To trust in the Lord with all our heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Brothers and sisters, if we don't wait for the Lord to make clear the path forward, our understanding or living by our experience, even for the best and most righteous men, 
can lead us in a very, very wrong direction. When we think of Jesus with Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus knows all the scriptures, but he doesn't know how to come to Jesus, and he can't make those connections. And we look throughout Scripture and we see repeatedly, God repeatedly brings people He loves into impossible situations and impossible circumstances. Why does He do that? The children of Israel being brought into the wilderness where there is no water and there is no food. And they shout out to Moses and God, have you done this to kill us? Why does God do that? Well, Deuteronomy tells us, he does it to remind us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God brings us, brothers and sisters, into impossible circumstances so that we can see an impossible God who does impossible things in our lives. Brothers and sisters, that's the God of the gospel and that's the God we worship. And this brings us to Our final point for this morning. Could I have my next slide please? Thanks. The gospel does the impossible. It brings sinners to Jesus as Emmanuel. God with us. God's promised King and Savior of God's family. It brings us to Jesus according to God's word. And brothers and sisters, that's impossible. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Unless the Spirit comes, unless you are born anew, unless you're given a new heart. No matter how much Bible knowledge you have. And the good news of God's Word is that God does for sinners what sinners cannot do for themselves. And in verse 20, God does this for Joseph by sending an angel to bring Joseph back to the Word of God and to the promises of God. Verse 20 says, but as he considered these things. And when he says, as he considered these things, it just shows. Joseph, on the one hand, is resolved in his heart to divorce Mary quietly. And in the next verse it says, as he considered these things. And I believe it shows that Joseph, even though he's made this decision, it doesn't sit right with him. It's still not comfortable. He's still having a hard time pulling the trigger because it's just not right. That he's tormented by what's there. And then we see the grace of God. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now I know some of you say, okay, well, Pastor Mark, when things are tough, there's no angel who's going to show up in my dream. But let's think about that for a second. When you go back to the scriptures, through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Special births, especially to women who were unable to bear children, were typically announced by God through an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord who would connect that birth with the promise or word of God. They were special or unique moments in salvation history. And we think of all of them that go through, whether it was Abraham's wife Sarah. Think of the arrival of Samson. We think of All the list of women who go through. We think of Elizabeth with John the Baptist. And those are unique and special moments. But they are never separate from the word of God. So don't come up to me and tell me that you had a vision from an angel to go and smoke drugs. Or be a missionary here or there. Or to swing from the chandeliers. The angels always come and they mention the word of the Lord. And show that what they're saying is completely consistent with the written word of God. And it's to let them know and let us know that this is God's work. This is the fulfillment of God's word. It's never separate from God's word. And then what the angel does, which is very interesting as you follow down, is he goes through a pattern that is very similar to what all of you who went to North Creek this past weekend learned as far as biblical counseling. He provides biblical counseling for Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David. 
And he reminds this carpenter who's struggling with the problem of what do I do with a fiance who's pregnant. He reminds Joseph who he is according to God's promises. Son of David. Joseph, you might be a poor carpenter in Nazareth. But in God's eyes, you are of the line of David. You are a son of David. You are part of God's plan of salvation. And you are part of God's promises. You are a child of God's promise. And brothers and sisters, when we receive someone or someone is struggling with discouragement or discontent in the church, where do we start? Oh, well, go and do this to fix the problem. Or work a little bit harder. Or maybe you can apply for this job. Do we stop in those impossible times and remind that person that they are a child of promise? They belong to the Lord. That God is at work in this situation or this circumstance. We need to begin with the promises of God and the greatness of our God, not how great our problems are. Brothers and sisters, that's what David did when he fought Goliath. And all his brothers wanted nothing to do with fighting the giant before them. But David went to the place where he remembered who the God of Israel is. And how what Goliath was saying was insulting. And the promises of God that God had given that he would be with those who stand in the name of the Lord. Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Biblical counseling step two. Biblical counseling step one. Remember who you are in relationship to God. Remember who your God is. Step two. Without faith we can't be pleasing to God. Don't walk by fear. Walk by faith and faith in the promises of God. How many times, brothers and sisters, do we make terrible decisions? Men, how many times do we make our wives and children's lives miserable because we are walking by fear? Fear of finances, fear of friends, fear of A, B, C, D, and E. Rather than stopping and considering what is God saying to me in the midst of these impossible circumstances. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel connects what is happening in Joseph's life. The problem. He connects the problem with what God is doing in Joseph's life and his family. How often when we struggle with discouragement and discontent, we can't see what God is doing. How often do we need an older sister or an older brother who has walked through those same valleys and can come alongside and say, look... Here's my Bible. This is what the Lord is doing. And draw that connection between the word of the Lord and that impossible circumstance. Well, this is what the angel of the Lord does. And that word for angel is messenger. Yes, it was a unique heavenly messenger. But in the church age, God has given messengers to come alongside to point people to Christ. Who are those messengers? They're you all. Right? You're a messenger of Christ. You're not an angel from heaven per se, but God has given you the gospel and He's given you new life so you can come alongside one another and point one another to God's Word. And brothers and sisters, it's only after the angel has shown who Joseph is according to God's Word. It's only after he's shown Joseph that he needs to walk by faith in the promises of God. It's only after he's shown Joseph that God is doing a mighty work in his life. Those things. Building him up. That then he comes and tells Joseph what to do. And I say that to us because our temptation is to get it backwards. We want that quick fist. Just tell me what to do, Pastor Mark. Here's what you need to do to make it right. And we leave behind God and we become so man-centered in it. It's a beautiful illustration of what biblical counseling is. It's at the very end that he comes and gives the imperative after he's gone through the indicatives. Verse 21, she will bear a son. And you shall command, call his name Jesus. And that name Jesus, as you know, means Yahweh, the Lord is salvation. You're going to give him a name that comes from God. 
That means he belongs to God, Joseph. You don't get to choose the name. For he will save his people from their sins. And in this way, the angel of the Lord connects this child to all the promises of God. But he's got to remind them, the Messiah, first and foremost, is coming to bring a salvation, not a political salvation, not a legal salvation, not a financial salvation. He's bringing the salvation you need. A salvation from sin. And of course, this is going to be a tension throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel because the Jewish leaders of the day and even the disciples, their expectation and their hope is a Messiah and King who is going to give them a political salvation and set them free from the tyranny of Rome. And that's going to restore David's kingdom to the glory of what existed when Solomon reigned. A political and financial freedom. The angel's showing, listen, we have something far greater. It's what you need. It's a salvation from sin. And many believe, and I believe they're correct, that as the angel does this, this is a reference to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. Verse 8. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The psalmist there draws that connection of God's steadfast love being shown for His people by a salvation that is first and foremost from our iniquities and our sin. Over and above our politics. And in verse 22, Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. A reference to Isaiah and a reference to verbal inspiration. He doesn't say in the scripture, he says, What the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Showing that Isaiah's words had come from the mouth of God. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is taken from Isaiah 7 through Isaiah 11. And the message of Isaiah that Isaiah gives to the kings, and in this time specifically to Ahaz is, Look, you need to trust in the Lord rather than the kings of the surrounding nations for your salvation. Ask of the Lord a sign. And of course, the sin of the people is that they will not trust in God. They will not trust in God's promises. Instead, they want to make alliances with Assyria, with Egypt, with all the surrounding nations who have big chariots, big cars, big weapons, big armies, all of those things. They do not want to trust in the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, if we cannot please God without faith, This is going to be a big word here, okay? Is it anything less than sin when we do not trust in God? We think of sin as these things that we do publicly that people see. But what about our hearts? When we do not trust in the word of God, his love for us, or the good news of his gospel... According to God's word, all the way back from the Old Testament to the New, that is a sin and an offense to God. Because he created us to be his creatures who live in humble dependence on his love, his goodness, and his word. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. And here, through the scriptures... Matthew shows us the Savior we need. It's not a Savior who is far away. It's God who has come to be with us. And he's showing that Joseph, your family, this is exactly what God is doing for you. All of these things which look crazy, it's because God is with you. And the result of God's word in us 
as we've seen before, as God's promises bring us to repentance and faith in Christ. And this is what we see in verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph does a 180 turn. He's going to divorce her quietly. A messenger from God comes in and provides biblical counseling. And Joseph repents, turns and does a 180. And what is that 180? Obedience that comes from faith in this child in Mary's womb is in fact God with us. He is who Scripture says He is. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that God comes into our lives through the power of His Spirit. He uses messengers in the local church. And He reveals to us according to His Word who Jesus is, but also who we are. And He shows us that the salvation we so desperately need is not a fix to our immediate problem. It's a Savior who will save us from our sin. But the question remains, will you trust and believe in Him? Will you stop your plans and decisions? And instead, by faith, will you obey Him? Not as a God who is far away, but as a God who is with us. Well, what's interesting as you go through the rest of Matthew is you see that that is a recurrent theme, that the salvation God gives is a God who is with us. And in the very end, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, in the end of the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and what? Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. The promise of love, a Savior and Messiah who defies our expectations and does one better than fixing our problems. He comes with us to save us from our sins. Let me close with this, brothers and sisters. The remedy for the family is not politics, legislation, or the schools you can afford for your children. And we need to be reminded of that on a daily basis because there's huge pressure in the world we live in. Huge stresses in families. How are we going to afford this? How are we going to do this on one income? How are we going to make a go of this? Well, we can't send here, so we have to do this. But let me encourage you to stop for a minute and consider the God who loves you. Consider how His Word is working in your life even as He brings you into hard and difficult circumstances. Consider His promises are actively at work in your life. Consider how you can trust Him and His Word will show you how to proceed. And then consider, brothers and sisters, what is the greatest treasure that you want to give your children? What is it that makes your family? Is it the size of your paycheck or the truth That you belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And He is present in your household. The new family of God where Matthew is going with this. Is that God gives a new family. A new family that is not like the old families. Because it's a new family that is built around the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is what the church is about. Brothers and sisters, are you part of that family? Next week, we're going to start a ministry called Cornerstone. It's going to meet from 11.30 to 12.30 or 1 o'clock. And what that ministry is all about is about gathering together and praying together through the ministry of the Word and prayer and to consider what it means to have a family that is built on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His Word, what a gospel family truly is.
And whether you're married or you're single, I hope you will attend. Because the greatest thing, brothers and sisters, that we can give our children is a knowledge of who Jesus is according to God's word. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody in our midst who does not know you in this way, Help us this day, Lord Jesus. And even for many of us who are professing believers, with the struggles that we have in our lives, would you help us to see that you're the one who has brought us here, not by accident. But you brought us to many of these difficult places to show us how great your love is for us. And that you are indeed God with us. In your name we pray, amen.